Well, take your Bibles and open to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. If you're a guest with us today, I'm so glad that you are here, and I hope that you feel warmly welcomed. Everything that we do here at Moberly is to help you have a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I'm glad that you've joined us and hope that uh, as you leave this place, that you will think more highly of Jesus than when you came in. Amen? Just before his death in 1543, a Polish-born mathematician started a revolution by publishing a book. And the book was entitled, On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres. Now that sounds revolutionary, doesn't it? Well, in that book, Nicholas Copernicus explained his discovery of what we now call a heliocentric model for understanding the universe. Copernicus believed that the sun did not revolve around the earth, but that the earth revolved around the sun. And that paradigm shift really started uh, a revolution in the modern scientific world. We, We call it the Copernican Revolution. Church, I believe that a Copernican revolution is needed in the church in America because we need to be reminded that the church doesn't revolve around us, the church revolves around Jesus. And either we can be the center or Jesus can be the center, right? There's a way of reading the Bible where it's all about us or it's all about Jesus. There's a way of coming to the church where it's all about us or it's all about Jesus. There's a way of living your life where it's all about you or it's all about Jesus. But our lives can either revolve around us or they can revolve around Jesus. There's no middle ground, amen? And if we're gonna make a difference in East Texas and the ends of the earth, we must be totally committed to radical Christ-centeredness where we understand that everything revolves around Jesus Christ. That's the message of the book of Colossians. In fact, Paul expresses it in a simple statement in verse 28 of chapter one when he says, we proclaim him. It's all about Jesus. And so as we look at Colossians chapter one, I want you to keep that in mind because that really is the central theme of the book of Colossians. Now, let me just remind you for a moment of the circumstances that caused Paul to write the letter to the church at Colossae. A doctrinal error had slipped into the Colossian church. I've been calling it the Colossian heresy. It was really a melting pot of ideologies, but at the core, it had a deficient view of who Jesus was. Curtis Vaughn said that it gave Christ a place, but not the supreme place. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church at Colossae in response to that heresy with a very simple but stunning truth, and that is that Jesus Christ is supreme. That is the colossal truth of the book of Colossians, that Jesus Christ is supreme. That's his antidote to this false message that had slipped in about Christ. It's simply to proclaim the truth about who Jesus actually is. And so where we've been coming the last few weeks, we've been looking at chapter one, In verses three through eight, Paul thanks God for the church at Colossae and what God has been doing amongst them. In verses nine through 14, Paul prays for the church at Colossae that the good thing that God began, he would continue to do in them. But then in verse 15, Paul launches into the first major section of his letter, really the first part of his argument. And it is a hymn of praise to Christ. And and I know that if I knocked on your door in the middle of the night, 
and at 2 a.m. you stumble to the door, you're in your robe, you open it and there's the pastor. And, and I said to you, hey, quick, tell me the four, four, four most important chapters in the Bible about who Jesus is. I know that all of you would respond by saying John chapter one, Philippians chapter two, Hebrews chapter one, and Colossians chapter one. That's what you would have said, right? I knew that was your answer. But Colossians chapter one really is one of those four major mountains in the Bible that show us who Jesus actually is. And Paul's view of Christ is that he is superior, that he has supremacy, that he has rank and rule, that he has preeminence and priority. He elevates Jesus to the highest place as the one who has the greatest authority and is, is worthy of the greatest worship. And folks, that is the place that Jesus should have in our church and in our lives. Superior rank, first place, highest rule, amen? And our life's purpose is to exalt Jesus as who he actually is. I love the way my friend Nathan Lino puts it. Nathan says that Jesus is the trophy and our lives are the display case. Isn't that good? That's why our church exists, to exalt Jesus, to be a display case for the greatness of Jesus. It's why your life exists, to be a display case that showcases the greatness of Jesus to a watching world. So when you come to Colossians chapter one, you see a showcase of who Jesus is. And this morning, as we look at the text together, I want you just to get one big truth from this text. And that is this, if you get nothing else today than this, it's this, that Jesus is Lord of creation. He is Lord of creation. So let's look at the, the text together. Colossians chapter one, I'm begin, going to begin reading in verse 15. It says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So the Apostle Paul starts with two very profound statements about who Jesus is. I want you to circle or underline them in the text. There in verse 15, he says, first of all, he is the image of the invisible God. And then second of all, he says he is the firstborn over all creation. And those two terms are very important for understanding Jesus's identity. First of all, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. Now, let me just stop right there because our culture is very happy to sort of coexist with Jesus as long as they can put him in a corner where he's gonna stay tame. And what that corner for Jesus to stay in is, is that he is a good man. He's a great moral example. Maybe he's a great teacher. And the culture is happy to admire Jesus as a good man. But Paul says, Jesus is more than mere man. He is the image of the invisible God. What that means is that when you see Jesus, you are seeing the visible expression of what the God who cannot be seen is like. If you wanna know what the God of the universe is like, Look at Jesus because Jesus, in the words of Hebrews chapter one and verse two, is the exact expression of God's very nature. In other words, he is more than mere man. Make no mistake about it. The Bible claims that Jesus is a man, but he is more than mere man. He is 100% man, 
and 100% God at the same time. He's not 50% man and 50% God. He's not just a good moral teacher. He is, as the creed puts it, very God of very God. When you look in the face of Jesus Christ, you see the glory of the Father. Amen? And so that's the first way that uh, Paul describes him. In the same way that you would look at a mirror and see a perfect reflection of yourself, when you look at Jesus, you see God's very nature and character. And that's very important because we all have ideas about what God's character is like, don't we? I grew up in a kind of fundamentalistic, sort of legalistic background. And the image that I had of what God was like was that God was basically like an old man in the sky waiting to destroy me when I messed up. Okay, can anybody sympathize with, with that view? Right, and so it's, it's almost like God was like the, the old man who's your neighbor who's like, get off my lawn. And your whole relationship with him was about rule keeping. So you do all the right things, you don't do all the right things, or else God will smite you. And that was my view of the character of God. But here's what Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 are saying. If you want to know what God's nature is like, what his character is like, look at Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you see something very different from that angry man in the sky picture, don't you? You see someone who was humble, who was born in a stable, who um, identified not primarily with the elites of society, but with the outcasts of society. You, you find somebody who's not afraid to get close to people who are untouchable, like leprous people, people that were outcasts from society. Those are the people that Jesus came close to. Um, people that were not acceptable in sort of, uh, you know, acceptable circles, like tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Those are exactly the kinds of people that Jesus hung out with the most. And he was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was meant as an insult. But when we look at Jesus' life, we see God's character displayed there. In other words, what we see in Jesus is, is someone who is full both of truth and of grace. Someone who is full of mercy and compassion, whose mercies are new every morning. Folks, that is what God is like. If you want to know what the invisible God is like, the God that no eye has seen, Look at Jesus. He is the exact expression of God's very nature. And then there's a second term that Paul uses here. Not only is the image of the invisible God, but he is the firstborn over all creation. Now that title, firstborn, it just simply means that, uh, that, he, that Jesus deserves the highest honor. He is a person of highest rank. In fact, in Scripture, that term firstborn is used to describe the Messiah. Let me show you where in Psalm 89 and verse 27, God is speaking of the Messiah. And this is what he says in verse 27. He says, I will make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. So the, the word firstborn, it's not saying that... Uh, uh, you know, Jesus is part of the created order. It's a title that's given to announce Jesus' superior rank over the rest of creation. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. It's another way of simply saying that Jesus is the King. Okay, that's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. If Jesus is going to be Lord of your life, it means that you can no longer be on the throne. It means you have to step off the throne because, right, we, we all like to, to sit there. We like to run our own life. We like to call the shots. But that doesn't work out too well, does it? We don't run our lives very well. 
And so the call to come to faith in Christ is the call to get off the throne and acknowledge that Jesus occupies the throne, that he is the Lord, that he is the king. And so as we think about who Jesus actually is, we start with this simple confession that above every other allegiance, Jesus is our king. Amen? Above every other allegiance, Jesus is our king. And every king has a kingdom. Every king has a domain over which he rules. So what's the, what's the extent of Jesus' kingdom? What's the, the boundaries of the kingly reign of Jesus? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Look at verse 15. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is king over everything. So how far do the boundaries of Jesus' kingdom go? The ends of the earth. He rules over all creation. You know what all means in Greek? That's right, all. That's what it means. He rules over all creation. That's why he's called the firstborn of creation. Some of you have a, translate, a translation that translates it exactly that way, firstborn of creation. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. It translates it, I think, more accurately, firstborn over creation. Because here's, here's what that means, right? When you say king of kings and lord of lords, you're saying king above all other kings, Lord above all other lords. When Jesus is the firstborn of creation, it's saying he's firstborn over creation. And creation itself is the extent of his kingly rule. Isn't that what Psalm 24 and verse one says? The earth is the Lord's and, say it with me, everything in it, it all belongs to him. Abraham Kuyper, that great Dutch theologian, put it this way. He said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He is Lord of creation. Now, what qualifies Jesus to be Lord of creation? Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question. The text gives us the answer. And we see it in verses 16 and 17. Paul is gonna give us three reasons that, that Jesus is qualified to be Lord of creation. Here's the first one. Jesus is Lord of creation because everything was created through him. You see it there in verse 16? Everything was created by him. In heaven and earth, the visible, the invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things, what does all mean? Right, all things means all things. All things have been created through him. So the text is telling us that the reason that Jesus has dominion over everything in creation is because everything in the, in the universe owes its existence to him. Jesus can rule over all because he created all. When Amy and I tell our kids to do something, and they say, you know, they haven't ever said this, but if they said this, you know, what gives you the right to tell us what to do? It's like, hey, little booger, I made you. Because I made you, I have the right to tell you what to do. Parents, can I get a witness? All right, amen. God gets to rule over all things. Jesus is the Lord of creation. Why? Because he is the agent of creation. He is the one through whom all things have been made. Hebrews 1 says this very thing in verse 2, God made the universe through him. Now let me just, let me take a little rabbit trail here for a second, okay? Baptist preacher, I got to let you know I'm a Baptist preacher. I take rabbit trails from time to time, a little side street. Because 
the reality is, is that that statement that all things were made through Jesus is a very countercultural claim in this day and time. Because our culture has this message, it's a predominant message, that you are here on accident. That you are here because of some cosmic explosion hundreds of millions of years ago. That all of this is total random chance. That worldview is called naturalism. Naturalism is the belief that the only things that are real are material things, the material universe. Right, so the things that you can experience with your senses. It was expressed by Carl Sagan on a TV show that he used to host called Cosmos. Some of you will remember the, the TV show Cosmos and Carl Sagan would come on there and he would say, the universe is all there ever was, is, or will be. You can go to the Grand Canyon today. You go to the little gift shop, over on the side there's a theater. And you sit in that theater and they will tell you about the origin of the Grand Canyon. It'll start with something like 250 million years ago. That is a predominant worldview in our culture. But listen, the, the naturalist, I believe, runs into some major problems. Because if you believe that only the material world exists, then you're going to have a hard time accounting for non-material realities. Things like love. Now, of course, the naturalist is going to explain love a little differently than we would. The naturalist would say that what we call love is nothing more than the chemical reaction of cells in our brain as they interact with people around us. And it's our evolutionary bent towards survival and self-protection that compels us to reach out to other people who are experiencing similar chemical reactions and form a survival relationship that we call love. Romantic, right? The problem with that, of course, is that it fails to account for how people can love one another when it costs them something. That actually to love someone is not about self-preservation, but maybe it's about self-sacrifice in that moment, like the love of Jesus. And that's not a chemical or evolutionary reaction. It is a choice, and it's a non-material choice. So the view that the only things that are real are those things that are material, I think that's an insufficient view. And what a sterile world that would be if true, because it robs all of life from its, from its meaning, Right? We have no purpose in life. I believe, let me just take you to philosophy class for a second. The natural result of naturalism is nihilism. If we are here on accident, then we have no purpose, and it doesn't matter anyway. And so that's exactly what our world teaches us. It doesn't matter. Do what, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Do what makes you happy. Do what feels good. Do what you feel in the moment. It doesn't matter. There's not, uh, you know, moral absolutes, no right or wrong. That's, that's the natural result of naturalism. But in contrast to that predominant worldview that's in our Western culture, the Bible calls out a different message. The Bible says, Colossians chapter 1, that we are part of a universe that has design and creativity and beauty and purpose. That we are not part of a cosmic accident. And, and surely even the skeptics must believe that down deep. I mean, when you watch, for instance, a, a baby that's being born and just the amazing process of what it takes for a baby to be born and nurtured by its mother, I mean, something inside of you has to resonate with this idea that we are part of a miraculous creation of love and that there is purpose in this life. If you're here today and you're, or, or maybe watching online and you, you just, <clears throat> maybe you feel like you're an accident. I've talked with some people before who will say, you know, I have a really broken background and my parents didn't plan to have me 
or I, I was born out of wedlock, or uh, I, I just feel like an accident. The Bible says that you matter and you have purpose. And the God of the ages knew that you would exist before time began. And, and God created you here on purpose. You're not an accident. The Bible states clearly that it is Jesus who is the one through whom all things have been made. And because he is the creator of all things, he can be the ruler of all things. Amen? I read a story this week about an American company that sold a printing press to a firm in South America, and they shipped it down there. The South American company put this printing press together, and when they put it all together, they tried to turn it on, and it didn't work. And so they sent message, sent word back to this American company, hey, we need you to send somebody who can fix this. And so the American company sent uh, the man who designed it to go down to South America and to put this thing together so that it could work. Well, the, the man who went down there was very young. In fact, he was so young that the South American company sent him back with a note that said, your man is too young. Send somebody with more experience. And that American company sent a note back and said, he made the machine, he can fix it. And Paul is saying, he made the world, he can rule over it. Amen? So he's Lord of creation because everything was created through him. Here's the second reason. Jesus is Lord of creation because everything was created for him. Notice what it says right there in verse 16. All things have been created through him and for him. I, I told you that the word uh, that's used of Jesus in verse 15, that he's the firstborn. It refers to someone who has highest honor. It's a reference to his superior rank. But a firstborn in the ancient world also referred to someone who is an, an, an inheritor. It's third service. I got to get that word out. Inheritor. An heir. Okay? Um, in, the, in the ancient world, if you were a king and you had lots of resources and land and so forth, you would leave an inheritance and the lion's share of that inheritance would go to who? The firstborn. The heir. Right? Um, the text is saying Jesus is the heir. He is the inheritor. We've actually already been introduced to that concept. Remember back up in verse 12, when we know Jesus, we share in the inheritance. But the text tells us who the inheritor is. It is Jesus. He is the firstborn. He's the heir. And what is his inheritance, church? It's the creation itself. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, what it says about Jesus God has appointed him, let's say it together, heir of all things. Jesus is the inheritor of all of creation as the firstborn. What he's saying here is that the one who's the exact expression of God's very person, the image of the invisible God, he is supreme in rank. And as firstborn, he is the one to whom everything belongs. Everything in this creation is for him, and that's such an important word for us today because from the time we are this high, we live as if everything was made for us. The text is telling us that the world is not created for us and for our consumption and enjoyment and pleasure. It is created for him and his enjoyment and his pleasure. It is all for him. Some, some, uh, some of you have a translation, it translates this way. This little term for him can also be translated toward him. All things have been created toward him. What that means is that Jesus is our telos. 
Telos means purpose or goal. He is the one for whom all things were made and to whom all things are headed. All creation is toward him. He is the end for which everything exists. He is the goal toward which everything is moving. The Bible tells us he is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. He's the one who flipped the light switch on, and folks, he's going to flip the light switch off. Everything is for him. It is created to find its consummation and its purpose in Jesus. So let me give you a couple of just practical examples of what this looks like. If all things were made for him, and all means all, then let's just think about how that would apply to different areas of our life. Think about the area of sexuality. Our culture says that that your sexuality is defined by you and exists for you. The Bible says sexuality is made by God, defined by God and created for God, which means that even in our sexuality, there is a way to glorify God in that area because it's not primarily for us, it's primarily for him and his glory. How about the area of finances? Our world tells you to get all you can and then can all you get and then sit on the can. Our world says, look, make all the money you can, spend it on your enjoyment. It's for you. But we know as believers that everything that we have is not, it's not earned by us, it's entrusted to us. That what we have is actually a gift from a good, kind, generous God. And so if you are stewarded with something, you are entrusted by God to manage that in a way that is for him. It's for his glory. So the question is, listen, it's not about like, and this is the message that we're taught from young, right? Is that you go to school, you make good grades so that you can get a good job. You work hard at your job so you can make good money and get the promotion so you can get the raise so you can use your money for things that bring you pleasure. And then you save your money so that you can retire. And then you retire right when your body starts to break down and you get ready to die. And that's the whole thing, right? So we just live this way. It's like, I'm just gonna try to accumulate all the stuff and experience every pleasure and you'll find that it never really satisfies you the way that you think it would satisfy you. The Bible story is different. It says that everything is God's. And so if you enjoy some of his good gifts, it's because he's entrusted that to you. And so your job is to steward that for him. How can I use what God has entrusted me for God's glory? That's really the question a believer asks. What about things like family or home? It's easy to think about, for instance, marriage as being something for me. In fact, when I talk with uh, couples who are getting married, we do premarital counseling, I'll often ask them, why are you getting married? And they'll say something like, well, she makes me happy. And really what they're saying is, I'm getting married for me because of how she makes me feel. And my thought is, okay, what happens when she doesn't make you feel happy in a week, right? Honeymoon's over, it's like, (laughs) you realize? You know, I married a human, and she married a human, and we're going to hurt each other. And now all of a sudden it's not happy, right? And so I'll do premarital counseling, or, or do premarital counseling, and then I'll do marital counseling with couples who are like, man, we've been married 20 years. We're just not happy. We're getting a divorce. And my response to that is always, what does happiness have anything to do with your faithfulness to your spouse? Because marriage is not for you. It's for God. All things were made for him. And so what if my marriage is not primarily about my happiness, but my holiness? 
What if my marriage is not primarily about whether my spouse makes me happy or not, but rather how God is using this marriage to sanctify me and shape me into someone who looks more like Jesus? Which means maybe having a hard marriage might be what God knows I need to make me look more like Jesus. And I still have purpose in my marriage because it's not for me and my happiness, it's for God. Does that make sense? Children, we could think about it the same way. We think about children being for us. When my oldest daughter turned 14, I was so depressed because I was thinking, I only have four years left with her. That went quick. That's depressing because I don't want to lose my kids. I love my kids. I don't want to send them out, right? I've heard from enough empty nesters who are like, it's wonderful. Just wait. (laughs) But I don't want to lose my kids. But here's the deal. My kids weren't made for me. They're made for God. And I'm entrusted to raise my children and then launch them out for God's glory. If you're a single person here today, you know, maybe you, it's easy, I think, to, to view singleness as something to be used for you. It's like, I don't have as many attachments. I don't have a responsibility for a spouse or children, so I can just kind of use my singleness for me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, though, that if you're a single person, that means you can serve God with a single-minded focus. So what would it look like to steward your singleness for God? And for his glory, how could you use this season in your life to serve him with everything in you, right? All things were made, what is it, church? For him. The text tells us in verse 17 the reason for that. Because he is before all things. You know what that means? (laughs) It means that Jesus comes first. He is before all things. He comes first. He has the priority And so the framework for your life should be simple. Jesus first. Jesus first. I'm going to live my life for him because Jesus is first. He has the priority. He has first place. I was made for him, and so I'm going to live for him. Amen? Listen, I know in a room this size, people watching online, that there may be someone here today, and you'd be honest enough to say that you've been living your life for you, not for God. And as Dr. Phil would put it, I just would say, how's that working for you? (laughs) When we live for us, it doesn't end well. When we live self-centered life, right? When everything revolves around us, it's a disaster. So what does it look like to reorient your life so that Jesus is the center and everything revolves around him, right? God made you for a bigger purpose than just you. And you'll never find your purpose until you live, live for Jesus, That's what scripture teaches us. You'll never find your purpose. If you're looking for your purpose in life, you'll never find it until you're living for Jesus. Um, I've got a key here in my pocket and this key opens one door, okay? It opens up the church office door, okay? And if you look at this key, it's got little ridges and things on this key that make it unique. It's designed for one particular lock. Now, the truth is I could use this key for other purposes. I could use it to clean my ears. I could use it to pick my nose. Ew. I haven't been, by the way. Just I could use it. I've got a lot of boxes with books. I could use it to open those boxes up. And if I use this key for all of those other purposes, other than the purpose it was made for, what's going to happen is that all of those little ridges that make this key unique are going to begin to wear away, and it will become useless. It won't be able to be used for that door, right? And the reality is, is that you can live your life for other purposes. You can live your life for you, for your pleasure, for yourself. 
The more that you live your life that way, what's going to happen is that all the little unique things that God made about you that he designed for himself, he designed to be used for his glory, those are going to begin to chip away and wear away until you're just like everybody else. God made you for something bigger. Amen? He made you to live for him, to find your purpose in him. Let me just tell you, you can't live for him apart from him. The Bible tells us that we were made by God, we were made for God, but our sin separates us from God. Every single one of us in this room has sinned against a holy God and that separates us from God. And here's the truth, we can never be used for God until we are reconciled to God through Jesus. Our sin is gonna separate us from God in such a way that you won't be used by God until you've been reconciled to him. The good news of the Bible is that anyone can be reconciled to God. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter your past or your background or your brokenness. If you're willing to say to God, God, I'm tired of living for me. I'm tired of being on the throne of my life. It's not worked out well. And I wanna leave that life behind. Okay, that's what the Bible calls repentance, turning from your sin. And then you cross over the line of faith and you say, Jesus, I want you to be on the throne. I want you to be the king of my, I want you to be in charge because you're gonna, you're gonna rule over my life much better than I can rule over my life. And so I'm gonna acknowledge that you're Lord, you're, you're king, you're in charge, and I wanna live for you. If you'll do that, here's what the Bible says will happen. God will change your life. In fact, actually what happens is he gives you a brand new life. It's like the old you is put into the grave and God gives you a whole new life. We believe as Christians that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And because he died on the cross for our sins, our sin can be buried in a grave. That old me that was so self-centered can be put into a grave. But Jesus also rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, he can give me resurrection life. It's like a whole new person is born, right? That's what the Bible calls being born again. It means you get a new start in life. And that is available to anyone who would turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ. Amen? And if you want to serve God, you gotta be redeemed and restored by God. All right, there's one more reason that Jesus gets to be Lord of creation. Number one, because everything in creation was made through him. Number two, because everything in creation was made for him. But here's the third thing. Jesus is Lord of creation because everything is sustained by him. Everything is sustained by him by him. It's held together by him. Look at what it says in verse 17. He is before all things. That means he comes first. And look at this. By him, all things hold together. That means that Jesus is not only the the agent of creation, he is also the sustainer of creation. He is the one who holds the created universe together. Have you ever wondered what keeps everything in our universe from just falling apart? I mean, have you ever wondered, this is the kind of thing that if you think about it too much, it'll keep you up at night. Okay, like what keeps atoms from disintegrating and turning the earth into one big volcano of atomic explosion? What what holds it all together? Have you ever wondered what what keeps a baby's heart beating? Have you thought about how many breaths you've taken? since you've just been sitting here? What, what allows me to just keep breathing? What about what, what, what keeps all the weather, weather patterns in motion? Uh, what keeps the planets in their proper motion? 
what is it that keeps the earth from being far enough away from the sun that we don't fry, but close enough that we don't freeze? What holds it all together? Folks, the Bible tells us it's very clear, it's Jesus. He is the one holding the universe together. By him, all things hold together. Hebrews 1, 3 says it this way, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Uh, uh, one commentator said it this way, that he is responsible for making the world a cosmos rather than a chaos. I'm thankful for that. The Bible tells us very clear that Jesus is the one holding the universe together. Jesus is the one making your heart beat. Jesus is the one keeping nations together. Jesus is the one who changes up the weather. Jesus is holding it all by the word of his power. God created the world by his word and he is sustaining the world by his word. And here's the good news about that. Let me just tell you, if Jesus can hold the universe together, he can hold your life together. If he can keep planets in motion, if he can keep nations together, if he can hold atoms together, then he can hold together your fragile life, your fracturing marriage, your faith that is holding on by a thread, your family that maybe you would say today, Pastor, my family's falling apart. I don't know how we're going to, if Jesus can hold together the universe, he can hold your family together. Amen? You say, Pastor, I, I, my faith is weak. I'm not sure if it's going to hold up under suffering or under trial. If Jesus can hold the universe together, he can hold your faith together. That is why he gets to be Lord over everything, because all things were made by him, for him, and they are sustained by him. C.S. Lewis said that if we find in ourselves a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That's exactly the message of Colossians 1. You were. You were made for another world. You, you were made for eternity. You were created through him. You were created for him. And even the breath that you are taking in this very moment is sustained by him. So as we close this morning, let me just ask you this question. If you're a follower of Jesus today, if you would say, I, I claim the name of Christ, how can you leverage your life, your family, your influence, your time, your financial resources, your thoughts to reflect this truth that Jesus is Lord over all creation? Right? He, he created us for himself. He redeems us by his work on the cross, and he wants to use us to bring him glory. What would it look like for that to be true in your life, for your life to actually reflect the truth of that? That if somebody followed you around this week and they followed a lost friend around in the same week, what would it be about your life that would show the difference that you actually believe that you were made for God? And what would it look like if we had a church full of people who were committed to that? Can you imagine if, if over 2,000 people in East Texas were just sold out to this idea of living for God completely? What could God do in our community? What could God do all around the world if we just totally sold out on that idea that I am going to live to spread the fame of Jesus Christ? I'm going to live my life fully on purpose for 
God. I just ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus today, just make that commitment. Make the commitment. You could even pray this as you leave. God, help me live for you. Help me live my life with you at the center. Help my life to revolve around Jesus and not the other way. I want you to come first in my life. God, I want my life to be a blank check. And God, you fill in the amount. However you want to use me, wherever you want to send me, however you want to spend me, I belong to you. Would you pray that prayer today? And then if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord, let me just tell you this, Jesus is Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not. In fact, Philippians chapter two says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of the Father. I would invite you to acknowledge it today. Don't wait until eternity when it's too late to acknowledge it. Acknowledge it today. Jesus, you are Lord. You are on the throne. If you've never made the decision to cross that line of faith, say, I'm tired of living for me. I want to live for God. I would invite you to make that decision today. Why not today? October 2nd, wouldn't that be a great day to make that decision to live for Jesus? Wouldn't October 2nd be a great day to say, I'm tired of being on the throne. I've made a mess. I'm ready for someone else to be on the throne of my life. You say, Pastor, how, how do you do that? Well, it's very simple. Romans chapter 10 says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What, here's what that means. If you want God to change your life, he'll do it if you ask him. All you have to do is ask him. In fact, you can ask him right now. I'm gonna ask every head in this room to, to bow and eyes to be closed. And if you are here today and you would just say, Pastor, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I've not yet made that decision. You could just pray something like this in the quietness of this moment. God, I know I was made by you and I know I was made for you, but I've been living my life for me. And today I wanna turn away from doing life that way. God, I acknowledge my sin. I've rebelled against you. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sin and to be raised from the dead. So I, I ask you to forgive my sin, to take over. I turn from my old life. I put my trust in you. Help me follow you. Amen.